there are some people in this world that understand. That everything that exists is there by random chance. That means that you and I are the result of a happy collision sometime in the great past of atoms, proteins, cells, tissues, organs, organisms, and even an entire ecosystem just randomly happen. Now statistically, and I know a lot about statistics because the only math class I've taken since I finished high school and three college degrees was statistics. Statistically, the fact that the world could have come into existence randomly, quite by accident, is far beyond our ability to calculate. Under the arrangement that some people believe your purpose for existence in mine is no different than the existence of a cloud or a cockroach. We have no purpose. We're just here. We're just moving through this random sequence of events. And everything that happens to us and everything we do carries the same meaning or non-meaning. And I don't have to tell you that I don't believe that, neither do you. More and more people are admitting, and especially scientists who refuse to, that there had to be a master creator that guided this existence into existence. Now, whether you want to acknowledge that individual as your Savior and Lord, that's your business. You'll answer to him one day for that. But I believe that God designed this world and created us for distinct purposes. There are other people that believe that life purpose is found in some altruistic and, and, and important sounding cause like save the whales or snails or lobsters or not using plastic straws. By the way, the other day I ate at a restaurant that had gone back. Remember the old paper straws when you were a kid? I know now why they made them plastic. They collapse on you. They're no good. But finding a cause to live for and to exist for, you know, whatever it may be, people are looking for. And I believe truly what they're looking for is their creator that made them for a purpose and a reason that God loves you and wants to have a relationship with you no matter how far you've been moved away from him. So as you grow up and you get up in the morning, you go to school, you graduate, you get a job, you get a family, you buy a house, you, you buy other things, you continue to get up and go to work, and then finally you get to that point of retirement it's not as grand as they say. And you get up and just stay at home. And time comes that you don't get up at all. You just lay there and you die. That is not the purpose that God created us for. Each one of us was made in the image of God and with his creative hand upon us. Even identical twins are really not identical. Because God loves creative things. He loves to create. He loves color. He loves beauty. He, he loves to, to show out how much He loves us. And He wants us to love Him and come back to Him. 
And I can't believe that of the 10 plus billion people that have ever lived here on the earth that we can say they're here randomly. Let me say something plainly to you this morning. One of the greatest features about life in Jesus Christ is that we recognize we have a purpose. And he gives us that purpose. He doesn't hand us a piece of paper or even a book. He places within us his Holy Spirit. And he says, I will guide you. And you will fulfill your destiny. And you will understand when, when the pages of life close on you and your life's coming to a conclusion, you will realize that there's a greater purpose beyond, that this life was only a shadow of true life. The times we're living in require that we occasionally step back and review that purpose. I still say that about five years ago when I gave up cable TV, I did the right thing. I'm tired of hearing people's speculation about tomorrow. I'm not worried about tomorrow. It's in God's hands. When Pearl Harbor was bombed on a Sunday morning, December the 7th, 1941, the great fear, my mother said, in their life was that the enemy would come across the ocean to the west coast and work their way eastward. And she said, we were fearful of that. We were terrified. And she said, I will never forget listening on the radio when the president went out for his broadcast. And he made a statement that sometimes is frustrating but often is comforting. He said this, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. Gripped in the grace of God and, and wrapped with the Holy Spirit, we have nothing to fear. I don't hear an expert on television in New York or the West Coast try to tell me what's going on in this world. They have no idea. I know this, I'm protected because I'm with Jesus. As someone told me the other day that had struggled and dealt with the reality of death facing them, they said, either way, I win. So I'm not afraid. And we need to understand the importance of that. Let me throw out some words. I want you to think about these. When you hear the words globalism, socialism, communism, open border societies and all that, let me remind you what they're talking about. They're talking about a worldview that's humanistic. Humanism. Now, let me explain what that is. Humanism is putting man at the center of all things rather than God. It's saying that man can solve everything, can fix everything, can repair everything, and all you have to do is believe in mankind, and it's going to be okay. Humanists believe that... that there's potential value and good in every human, and, and we're basically good people. Christianity says this, we have a fallen nature, and we're sinful. And we do things many times intently that are sinful or evil, and sometimes we do them without intending to because they become a habit within us. And we need to be released from that. And the first thing we need is forgiveness. And the second thing we need is a relationship with our Creator that can help us overcome those habits that would destroy us. And we call that relationship 
among Christians with our Savior, sanctification, purifying our life. You see, man is not the center of all things. We cannot fix the problems in this world. Every time we try to, they get worse. And that's why their outline that they have in the world does not match ours. They mock and ridicule us. Their problem isn't that they don't like us or they don't like our buildings. Their problem is they don't want to believe there's a God. I've told you before, I don't believe people disbelieve God because he's not believable. I think they disbelieve in God because he expects something of them. They're, they're not passively ignoring him. They're actively resisting him. And that's the difference. Go to Romans 1 and 2 and read what Paul said to the Christians in Rome, a, a culture much like our own. And, and he told them, he said, people will actively pursue their hatred towards God while denying his existence. I asked an atheist one day when I was in London... It's Speaker's Corner in Hyde Park where you can go on a Saturday and you can say anything you want in your little space there. And there was an atheist there and he was just foaming at the mouth, fuming and angry. And I asked him, I said, if you're so angry about the God that doesn't exist, why are you even expressing a feeling? If you don't think he exists, walk down the street and smile, whistle and have a good day. Why are you so angry? You see, they know there's a God there. And they understand that he demands something of them. And they're not willing to submit to that. The Apostle Paul saw as a good Pharisee, as a member of the Sanhedrin, did the highest calling that a Jew could do in his day. And that was seeking out Christians, people of the way, as they called them then, to seek them out and to destroy them. And that's exactly what he was doing when God confronted him on the road to Damascus. And he told him, he said, it's tough kicking against me, isn't it? He looked God right in the face and it blinded him. But it humbled him. And he understood that his problem was not a group of ragtag people out there that had a belief system that was odd. Oh, there were plenty of groups like that. Many, many in, in that day as there are today. Now, his problem was that he was facing the, re the true and the living God, the resurrected Lord that was there. That's what he was struggling with. I've always believed, and I'll find out when I get to heaven, that I believe the, the Apostle Paul as Saul of Tarsus, his problems began when he was standing beside a rock pile, holding the cloaks of the men who stoned the first martyr for the faith, Stephen. You see, he brought the accusation. He pointed the finger. He read the letter from the government that gave them permission to kill this man. And he heard the words out of this man's mouth as he looked to heaven and, and as he proclaimed that he saw Jesus standing before him. I think that haunted him the rest of his life. People struggle with who Jesus is. And I want to think today for a few minutes about the questions that the book of Mark puts forth to us 
and how we can begin to understand who Jesus is because actually our purpose and our reality begins with him. Oh yes, you'll have creative uh, intuition about what you should do. In fact, I've always told folks, when you go to college, your first semester, you'll have all sorts of ideas going through your head once you declare a major. And, you know, the average college student working on an undergraduate degree will change their majors three times. Makes you sweat, doesn't it? But the reality is God has one purpose for us, and it's not a major. It's not that you will do this. God says, it's simple. Be filled with me. You're to have less of you and more of me. And as you do that, you will fulfill your destiny. And as you melt away and Christ comes forth, things will happen that are amazing. The first question I would ask about living life on purpose is simply this. Does your life reflect God's purpose right now? Do you have a confidence and a feeling that God is guiding you in all that you do? You know, in Mark 10, 45, it says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Service is what Jesus was all about when he came to this earth. He sacrificed. He dressed as a pauper. He worked in a carpenter shop as an apprentice with his dad for 30 years. He taught humility by washing the disciples' feet and by not declaring anything in an arrogant way. He gave away the greatest healing the world has ever seen, and he called people to follow him. He was a servant. That was his purpose. None of us can pattern our lives exactly after Jesus, but we're to follow after him and we're to fulfill our potential in whatever way we can because God is calling us to do that. Jesus' actions work toward that purpose. So from the very first word, Mark shows us Jesus on the move. He was very active. He was doing great things. And he was never still. And I think that we need to understand the importance of what he did from, from the cross to the empty tomb, from the manger to his life in the wilderness coming back into Jerusalem. All those movements demonstrated a purpose in his life, a direction that he was going. Notice wherever Jesus went, he was doing something. He was always active. Mark records... 27 specific miracles that Jesus performed. And all of those had one purpose. That was to open the eyes of the Jewish people and let them realize their Messiah was there. Now secondly, I would ask the question, how do I avoid the hindrances that stop me from fulfilling my purpose? Because in, in this life today, you can begin with all the good intentions of the world, going towards something to do it, and something can hinder you, can stop you, can, can pull you off to the side of the road and end what you had planned so precisely. That's the way life works. And sometimes we get distracted. And at the end of the day, we look back and we've done none of what we planned to do. 
And sometimes in life, we get so distracted with life, we forget that God has given us a purpose to, to live out. The book of Hebrews says that we have in Jesus a high priest who was tempted just like us in every way, but he resisted. And it says that Jesus was constantly dealing with hindrances. It tells us to cast off those hindrances, to purposely resist them. Mark 1.34 said that Jesus healed many who had various diseases, drove out demons. But he said, don't let the, the, the demons announce who I am. They know who I am. Is that not an irony to you? The Jewish people who had been looking for over a thousand years for the Messiah, actively looking, didn't even recognize him. But the demons were so knowledgeable of him that they were instructed not to speak. Sometimes we're blind to the truth, but we blind ourselves. Mark pictures Jesus running from the crowds and going away from them because he wants to fulfill what God has called him to do. Jesus went off by himself often, and Peter rebuked him and said, You know, all these people, they want to see you, and, and they're excited about you, and, and, and don't you realize? Remember when Peter rebuked him for, for him saying that, that he would die, and then three days later, be, and he said, Oh, no, Lord, nobody's going to hurt you. We're going to protect you. Simon Peter couldn't even protect him. He could not even catch a day's net of fish without Jesus. But my, how he bragged. How he boasted about his abilities. Pride and arrogance can overcome any of us in any situation. And Simon Peter was trapped by that, and he didn't even realize what, what Jesus was doing. He wanted to give Jesus a, a, a neat marketing plan to promote himself so that he could be the replacement for the Caesars. So they could take over the, the Roman Empire, that he could be the one that, that, that just sets things right. There's a day and a time and a reckoning for doing that, but it wasn't then. And you have not come to change the world. You're here to change your part of the world. And while you're casting a vision out there at the rest of the world and culture and the environment around you, and you're constantly giving an editorial about your opinion of that, don't in the midst of doing that fail to fulfill your destiny in your world right around you, which is... You, your family, your circle of friends, and the circle of associates that you either work with or you're with in society. That is your mission field. That's who you're called to reach. And sometimes we're so busy looking at the direction the world is going, we're distracted from doing what God has called us to do. Friend, let me tell you something. The world's been going in that direction ever since the world first existed. Remember, the first murder was committed in a worship service. As Cain and Abel were coming to worship God. They were brothers. They were supposed to get along. They were supposed to, to be friends. They, you know, one worked in one place, one worked in another. That's how you keep brothers getting along. And they still had a murder. 
Yes, the world is broken. Yes, bad things are going to happen. And no, you're not going to fix it. Remember? Man is not the measure of all things. We are not the ones to fix what is broken. God will fix that. We're to reach out to those in our circle. We're to make a difference. One of my favorite books that I've ever read is by C.S. Lewis entitled The Screwtape Letters. Screwtape is a demon. And the demon in a fictional discussion is talking to his nephew, Wormwood. And they're talking about how to overcome a person who's trying to follow Christ and be obedient. It's one of the most enticing exhilarating reads that you will ever pick up. It was written a long time ago, 1942. But what's amazing is it will read like today because you will see in this the discussions that are made. You will see the temptations that you go through and the explanations that you were given by the evil one when he tries to convince you to walk away from your faith. We've got to realize the importance of knowing, number one, who our Savior is, but number two, who our enemy is. The world, the flesh, and the devil are our enemies. But lastly, you need to ask this question of yourself. Do I live like I'm on limited time? Do you do that? You know, I'm on limited time. I watch that clock up there. I'm not just looking at the cowboy hat there that Robert's got on the edge of the, the sound booth there. I do watch that. I want to make sure it's there because that lets me know he's up there. But I watch that clock because I know that in 15 till we go off the air. And I learned early on from a very sweet lady named Annie Laurie Williams that you better finish telling your last story that you close with before they go off the air. I walked across the street one Sunday after church and my phone was ringing off the hook and the security person that was in the, the secretary's office looked at me and said, you're in big trouble. Annie Laurie's been calling for you. I went in there and picked my phone up and she chewed me out for 10 minutes. And then she said, tell me what the ending of the story was so I can sleep tonight. We all live by time. Borrowed time, and I'm watching that, and I realize that it's not just a clock, but a calendar we live by. We all realize that we have only so much time to make a difference in our world. We only have so much time to reach a child once they're born, when we see where they're going, and we want to pour truth in their life and demonstrate to them what it means to be a Christian. I remember the day that I told a friend of mine in this church whose son had just finished the 11th grade, and I told him this, I said, you have one year to change your son's life and pour yourself into his life because once he leaves home, you will not be the most important person in his life. And the dad got upset with me, and he said, oh, he's my only son. We, we're very, very close. And I said, I know that. But once he goes to college, many other voices will have his attention. And he'll find a favorite or favorites. And suddenly you will not be the center of attention. See to it that you pour your life into him for the next year. And it made a difference. And it helped change him. We're all living on borrowed time. Notice what Mark says here. And 
Mark, in the first chapter of the book of Mark, 11 times in verses 10, 12, 18, 20, 21, 23, 28, 29, 30, 42, and 43, uses the word immediately. There's a reason. Jesus was urgent about what he was doing. He understood the importance of it. He didn't hang around for people to praise him. He did his work and he moved on. We've got to realize that we are worshiping the one who is and was and is to come. Who is the same today, yesterday, and forever. He is not ruled by time and space and history. We are. And we're given all the same measure to come close to him. And it's called a life. It may be 12 years long. It may be 112 years long. But in that life, you have an opportunity to get to know him. And we need to be serious and urgent about what we're doing. I had a friend tell me this one day, and it, it really stuck with me. He said, I hear and I forget. I see and then I remember. I do, though, and then I understand. Some of you are hearing me, and you won't remember what I've said. In fact, some of you don't remember right now what I said three minutes ago. Because you looked at your watch when I mentioned the clock, and you thought, wow, we're going to eat in a few minutes. And that wiped away everything. You see, we hear and we forget. But go back and read God's Word. Read the book of Mark, the first three to four chapters. And you will remember this. But then if you'll do what I'm saying, if you'll share your faith in a realistic way, no, don't go out there thumping your Bible and threatening people with hellfire and damnation. No, we don't have to do that. Most people realize that in the cessation of life at death, there is something beyond. And they understand that they should be serious about that. On more than one occasion, in fact, probably at least 20 times, I've been called to the bedside of someone dying, and they looked me in the eye and they said something like this, I need to talk to you about my fire insurance. Because they didn't want to go to fire. They wanted to just double or triple check to make sure everything was okay. And here's the reality. It's not a matter of checking off certain boxes on a sheet of paper that makes you a Christian. It's not having your name on the roll of a church. Your church letter is meaningless when it comes to getting into heaven. Here's what matters. Your constant walk with Christ that confirms to the world the direction you're going, and it affirms you in a secure faith for eternity. I don't know about you, but when my last moments come, I don't want to be sweating it over whether or not I've got my fire insurance. What I want to do is I want to be looking up and praising God and waiting for that moment. There was a man that was a member of this church for many years that I never got the opportunity of knowing other than through the words of his wife and his daughter. But Mr. Miles Prestle taught Sunday school here and taught people by his life. He was an amazing Christian. 
I stood beside his grave not so long ago when we interred his, his precious bride beside him. And there again I told the story to those gathered around that grave in Marion Junction Cemetery. When Miles Prestle was at death's door and he knew it, he didn't get quiet and weepy. He didn't tremble and worry. He threw his hands up in the air and he screamed, Up! Up! He was ready to go. He had been thinking about it forever. As his daughter said, Dad already knew the first five weeks in heaven. He had it mapped out in his head who he wanted to see, where he wanted to go, what he wanted to experience. He was excited about it. And Dear people, if you have that kind of purpose in life, you don't need to hear me. You've already heard the Holy Spirit of God. I just ask you to obey him. That's all. Obey him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that you give us an understanding of your word and your way so plainly. And that a purposeful life can be lived. It can be lived fully and totally. If we are willing to be obedient to you. And I pray this morning that we will listen not to my words, but to the Holy Spirit of God that's speaking to the hearts of those who are here. And that you will hear what he is saying, fully and totally. That you will su submit to his will. If he's calling you to come as a, a Christian, to follow him, to, to say, yes, I'm a sinner, and I need to be saved, he will hear that. If God's speaking to you about church membership, that you need to be in a circle of accountability, of friends that love you, of a church that's growing, I pray that this would be the day that you would come forward and join this church. For whatever your need is, I pray that the Spirit would speak and you would obey. And I pray this in your heavenly name, Father. Amen.